you, sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, June 20th, 2011. It's going to be an interesting week. My daughter gets married this week. Let's just say things are a little crazy at the Roseboro compound. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. It doesn't make any sense that these things are being said in the church, except for maybe that there's some kind of a rebellion going on. <clears throat> And, and what I mean by that is, is that we we have a Bible. It's not a piece of silly putty or Play-Doh that we can bend into any little shape that we want. We don't get to carve and craft our own theologies. Instead, God used nouns and verbs and pronouns and adjectives and and cl- subordinate clauses and and things like that in order to communicate and reveal information, not just any old information, but reveal himself to us, to tell us what our problem is, where we came from, um, what the, what God has done to act on our behalf. I mean, all of this is in the scriptures. And the reality is, is that uh, <clears throat> this message is not hard to find in there. It's laid out rather plainly. And uh, unfortunately, there's a whole bunch of people out there making stuff up. And uh, saying things that ought not to be said in the uh, in in Christian pulpits, in Christian magazines, Christian books, articles, newspapers. And anyway, you get what I'm saying. So we do the comparative work. I, we're not we're not respecters of persons here. I mean, nobody's gets off the hook. I, even I have to be compared to what God's word says. I mean, even the Apostle Paul. I mean. You look at the uh, Berean church, and uh, they had no problem uh, taking the Apostle Paul's message and going, hey, hey, we, uh, we, we heard what your gospel is, Paul. Let us have a day or so. We're going we're gonna to dive into the, uh, into the Old Testament text, and we're going to compare your good news to what's written in the Old Testament to see if what you're saying is right. 
And and so just because he was the Apostle Paul didn't mean that uh, everybody had to believe him carte blanche. In fact, uh, we read in the book of Acts that the Bereans had a noble character because they tested the gospel that Paul preached to them. The same, the same thing goes on today. You, you, we have God's word, and Jesus himself warned us about wolves in sheep's clothing, warned us that there would be people who would come to us in his name. Teaching things they ought not to teach, uh, they, false Christs, false prophets. Uh, yeah, it, it goes on. See, here's the deal. Satan and God are at war. I, I don't know if you're familiar with this concept, but they're at war. And uh, Satan is the one who instigated the war. And uh, and Christ, well, he's won it. In, in reality, he's really won it. Uh, but Satan, uh, he hasn't been locked up for eternity yet. So as a result of it, you know, he continues to skirmish. And uh, he, the last thing he wants to have happen is for people to hear the biblical gospel, to be brought to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins. Uh, you know, he wants to keep humanity on his side. And so uh, where Satan spends a lot of his time and his effort is in the biblical, ch- in, in, in the church, in, you know, in churches. Uh, obfuscating the message, denying the message, attacking the message, finding something more bright and shiny than the message of the gospel, and uh, over and again, I mean, Satan's got a you know a, a, a plethora of ways in which he tries to attack the gospel. I mean, he does it directly, he does it indirectly, he does it by distraction, and he does it by just plain silliness. And uh, so, you know, all of this is but what Christ told us would be the case. So. Uh, this program exists to be, well, a reminder that uh, all of us are to be in God's Word. None of us are um, immune from the attacks of the devil, and uh, and God's Word can be trusted. Sinful human beings, being what they are, sinful human beings, even regenerate sinful beings, uh, they are to be tested and uh, brought to uh, sound biblical doctrine, you know, that be tested against the scriptures, and if they're deviating from it, they're to be corrected and rebuked, and they're to repent and uh, teach. Anyway, you get what I'm saying. So, all right, let's oh, that's, man, let's talk about what we're going to talk about. First of all, I'm going to talk about what we're going to talk about on tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tomorrow, I'm going to be interviewing. I'm going to be doing something really different. Uh, I got an in-studio guest. I recorded the uh, interview already. I'm going to be playing it tomorrow. With uh, a gentleman who is a uh, he's uh, his name his name is Phil Layman I call him Cantor Layman and uh, what he is is uh, he's an organist and liturgist if you would at a uh, confessional congregation in the greater Indianapolis area and he's going to be in studio we're going to be dis- we're going to be literally walking through uh, 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 the divine service setting one uh, which is a fantastic thing and you think why are you going to do that believe me when I tell you there's a reason. It, it, the reason for it has to do with the fact that um, I'm convinced that a good, well-structured liturgical setting is a fantastic tool for Christian discipleship. And when we walk through this, you'll see what I'm saying. And I think that it's far superior to the uh, the praise and worship rock and roll shows uh, that are going on and with, along with the self-help pep talks in the um, in the seeker driven uh, evangelical churches i i i consider that to be an inferior tool to uh, to making disciples and uh, when we walk through uh, the uh, divine service setting one which for a lot of you out there this is going to sound like you know we're, like we're going to go to planet mars and i'm going to walk you know, i'm going to give you a tour of a different planet and it's that's how foreign this thing is 
But uh, what I would recommend you do, listen, just listen as we walk through this, and you'll understand that our uh, Christian forebears, our Christian fathers and grandfathers, and those who have the saints who have preceded us in the in the faith and and already in glory, um, they knew what they were doing. And uh, and here's the deal: the, the the divine service is not given from God. Um, I I'll be the first to admit that, but after we walk through it and you understand what this thing is all about and why it does what it does and says what it says and how it came about, uh, you know, just ask yourself if the new innovations are an improvement upon this or uh, uh, really a step backwards. You, you'll see what I'm saying. Anyway, so that's tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Today, well, okay. I can I, I when I sat down to uh, produce today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, I um <laughs> I did not expect to spend as much time as I'm going to spend on Stephen Furtick, but I'm going to spend some time on Stephen Furtick. Um I've got a Stephen Furtick update and uh, uh Stephen Furtick, you know, being the, you know, the the chief vision caster down there at uh, Elevation Church in um Charlotte, North Carolina. Well, uh, they've got a brand new uh, sermon series that they're doing uh, for the you know, for the next few weeks, and um, it, yeah, it's well. Hey, let me play for you the uh, the video trailer for this, and you'll uh, you'll at least you'll understand a little bit of what's going on. Now, what you don't see in this video trailer, you're hearing the music, and it's going. That sounds like rock and roll. Yeah, I know. Uh, they have different video segments of major rock and roll bands playing in stadiums. Um, in that would be the Rolling Stones on the video here. The name of the series is the Summer Concert Series, okay? So uh, for the next few weeks there at Elevation Church, and it's, they're already two weeks into this, they're calling it their Summer Concert Series. So rather than you know preaching about movies, uh, you know, being the innovative vision casting guy that uh, that um, um, well, Pastor Furtick, I don't even know if that's the right way of putting it. Um, Stephen, you know, the, being the innovative vision casting guy that Stephen Furtick is, uh, they're doing a summer concert series. But here's the deal. So this next segment is going to include a lot of music, and i got to explain to you what happened at Elevation Church uh, just a couple weeks ago, but that requires me to do this. Hang on here. So vain, 
Bet you think the Bible's about you. You're so vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you. Don't you? Don't you? Yeah, that's my Stephen Furtick update music. So anyway, we've got a long road to hoe here, and I'm trying to get to a point, but I don't want to make the point too soon. But uh, let, let me explain. Um, I'm on the uh, so you've heard the the audio here. the The name of their summer sermon series is Summer Concert Series, and I'm on the Elevation Church's worship blog. You can find this at elevation-worship.com. Elevation-worship.com, and they list out the uh, the the music set. Um. Yeah. In fact, let me read this. Um, from June sixth, it says set list for six four and six five of uh, twenty eleven summer concert series week one. Um, <clears throat> a medley of songs from Nobody's Fault but Mine, Led Zeppelin, Purple Haze by Jimi Hendrix, and Crying, um, Aerosmith. Those are three of the songs that were included in the worship set. The, the, like again, listen to this. These were three songs from the worship set at Elevation Church on June sixth. Included Led Zeppelin's uh, "Nobody's Fault But Mine," Jimi Hendrix's "Purple Haze," and Aerosmith's "Crying." Now, I, I want to you know I want to do this appropriately. So um, I want to here's a sample from Led Zeppelin's "Nobody's Fault But Mine." So this was what was performed at Elevation Church at at church. Okay, now I got to pause there. That's just a sampling. I feel like a DJ today. So uh, Elevation Church on June uh, uh, 4th and 5th, uh, part of their worship set included this song, Led Zeppelin's Nobody's Fault But Mine. It also included this drug-enhanced song by Jimi Hendrix. Like you're getting closer to Jesus as I'm um, playing this song. Which God is being worshipped in the song, by the way?
okay, yeah, I'm <clears throat> yeah, I'm not sure which god's being worshipped there. Um, and then finally, uh, you know, to help round out the summer concert series opening musical set there at Elevation Church, uh, Aerosmith's uh, song "Crying." Here. Steven Tyler was a Christian rocker. I had no idea. The tables have turned. Yeah. I'm cause me and then where's that party? That kind of love was the killing kind. So listen. All I want is someone I can't resist. I know all I need to know. So, um, yeah, so <clears throat> again, back to the Elevation Church's uh, worship blog at elevation-worship.com. So they played Nobody's Fault But Mine, Led Zeppelin, Purple Haze, Jimi Hendrix, Crying, Aerosmith. This is all part of the worship set there at um, <clears throat> Elevation Church. Uh, the Whoever wrote the blog post said, For this summer concert series, we're theming each week with a different musical genre or artist. We've never done anything like it and wanted to have a fun vibe to kick off the summer. So we took clips of each of these cover songs from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and added a fun element to our experience. Mm. Now, if you're wondering why we do cover songs in our worship experiences. I answered that a few months ago back. Here's what I said. The worship of God isn't something to be casual about, so I think we should all question why we do certain things, why we sing or play or demonstrate particular songs from our platform. For us, there's a couple of reasons behind us singing a secular song in our worship experiences. We'll do it because, one, that song has certain undeniable truths in it, that could be communicated on a different level or may connect in a different way uh, with the congregation than a worship song. All truth is God's truth, whether it's sung in a worship song or sung on your local pop radio station. I mean, using this logic, I mean, since all truth is God's truth, I mean, reality check here, uh, couldn't we uh, find the truth in the Book of Mormon and preach from the Book of Mormon then on uh, on a Sunday morning? Couldn't we find some truth in the Bahad'va Gita? And, uh, and, 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 you know, and rather than, you know, since all truth is God's truth, I mean, we should be, um, we should open up our churches to hear the truth communicated from different books, uh, you know, like the Bahad'va Gita, the Quran, uh, the Book of Mormon, you know, I mean, why not even the, uh, the New World Translation of, 
of the Bible put out by the uh, Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. This is this isn't an argument. I mean, I mean, if all truth is God's truth, I mean, we we should we should make sure that we include some of the truth found in you know like some of the science textbooks. I mean, E equals M C squared would be a fine thing to be preaching about, don't you think? I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, all truth is God's truth, so we should be communicating that truth, shouldn't we? Yeah, this is the the depth of the logic there at. <clears throat> for basically justifying the unjustifiable. Uh, number two, our church's vision and mission is to reach those who are far from God so they'll be filled with life in Christ. Reach them with what? You're reaching them with what they already have. They don't have to, they don't have to go to church to hear Led Zeppelin, uh, Jimi Hendrix, and Aerosmith. It's ridiculous. That being the case, we see hundreds of unbelievers step through our doors each week because of being invited or curiosity or whatever the case may be. There's no doubting that God has brought them there for a purpose. And that's so God, you know, well, if they showed up at your church, I mean, and God was the one behind it. I mean, showing up at any old rock concert then would be the case too, right? Anyway, this by no means replaces the passionate worship of Jesus and pointing to him through our worship songs or worship set. We make no apologies for our passionate pursuit of Jesus during our worship experiences or tone down our excitement for what he's up to here or what he's done in our lives. We know lifting him up and putting him on display is what we ask of uh, that he asks of all of us. He'll take care of drawing people to himself, but we still feel like he calls us to be creative in how we approach designing the worship experiences here and sometimes that looks like singing a secular song so they they're at elevation church they have no problem saying that they can sing any song they want find the truth in it and it can be included in good conscience as part of their worship set now by the way um uh stephen furtick uh he after the after they played the set that included <clears throat> Nobody's Fault But Mine, Led Zeppelin, Purple Haze, Jimi Hendrix, and Crying, Aerosmith, he comes on stage and he decided to make a quick comment, opening notes, uh, a keynote regarding the songs that were just sung and during the worship set there at Elevation Church. Here we go. I uh, I wanted to come up with like a spiritual tie-in for all of that music, but... Please, I, I'd love to hear it. Uh, nothing I could come up with. Yeah, it was just all... It was just all so cheesy, you know, like... Uh, we're all in a purple haze of sin. <laughs> and if you're honest today, you'll admit it's nobody's fault but mine, but... If you're crying out to the Lord for forgiveness, he will heal you. I thought I could do something like that. Or now notice he even is having a, I mean, remember from the Elevation Church is from their worship blog at elevation-worship.com. That, you know, justifying singing those secular songs. Okay. That, that those songs have certain undeniable truths in it that could be communicated on a different level or may connect in different ways with the congregation than an actual worship song. That's from their, their blog itself. Okay. It, but uh, notice uh, his attempt to spiritualize it just comes off as cheesy because those songs are not intended to be used as worship songs. Unless, of course, you're wa worshiping sex, drugs, and rock and roll, which is really what those songs are about. Anyway, uh, let's then listen to Stephen Furtick. He 
now takes a shot at those who would criticize him for taking this course of action. You know, a lot of people don't like rock and roll in church because they're stupid, but um, just that's the theological explanation for that. I don't think you should play that music in church. You are the church. This is, this is just ridiculous. I don't think you should play that music. How does this worship, how, does the, how do those songs actually glorify Jesus Christ? How do those songs truly praise the one true triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? How do they communicate sound biblical doctrine? That's ridiculous. I mean, by the way, I mean, you, I mean, you caught the little swipe there. Let me, let me, let me play it again. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't like rock and roll in church because they're stupid. Yeah, there you go. So a lot of people don't like rock and roll in church because they're stupid. You know, it reminds me, uh, not too long ago, Stephen Furtick put out a video called Hey Haters, and uh, obviously it was directed at me, and uh, at me and uh, as well as a few other of his critics. But uh, listen in to Stephen Furtick here. Hey, haters, I hate to break this to you, but your day is done. See, we're done with the way you sling shame and blame in the face of anyone who doesn't say what you say and see what you see, read what you read, think what you think, and do what you do, how you do what you do. Okay, now, see, he's taking a shot at, at the people who critique him, and, uh, and he calls them haters. Now, the funny thing is, is that, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't his uh, complaint apply to I, uh... him? You know, a lot of people don't like rock and roll in church because they're stupid, but um, just that's the theological explanation for that. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't he hating on people who don't think that rock and roll, that glorifies sex, drugs, and rock and roll um, is appropriate in church? Yeah, the, the, and yet they, on on their blog, on their worship blog, they readily admit that they've never done anything like that before, quite like that before in their worship experience. Yet anybody who would complain about it and say that's not appropriate, they say, well, the reason they don't like it is because they're stupid. You don't like rock and roll in church? You're just dumb. Doesn't that make him a hater? But it's not about you. We're sick and tired of your pervasive propensity to pick a fight and hide the light, nitpicking every single pixel of God's brilliant picture, seeing only your side in only black and white. Mm, only your side, only in black and white. I don't think you should play that music in church. You are the church. Church isn't a place. And uh, I always wanted to have a church where... Everyone could relate. I always, I always wanted. I always wanted. He. This is all about him. Wanted to have a church. When I was growing up, this isn't an insult against traditional church, but oh, you just the called them stupid. Not relate. I was a 16-year-old kid trying to learn how to play guitar to Jimi Hendrix, and um, I didn't want to learn how to play the organ. And <laughs> yeah, so it's all about him and the way he wants it done. And if you disagree with him. You're stupid. You know, a lot of people don't like rock and roll in church because they're stupid. 
Yeah, so complicated as that is, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't this make Stephen Furtick a hater? I mean, you know, he he's said that he's had enough of haters, but, I mean, if you disagree with him and the way he wants to do things, um, then you're just stupid. Doesn't that make him a... Hmm. Yeah, I've critiqued his content. I don't recall calling Stephen Furtick stupid. Interesting. All right, we are up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Reaching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quan Do. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. Um, here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm gonna give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay. When I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Kwando. We use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. You think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off. My students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be and pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. 
It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. All right, if you don't like rock and roll at church, you're just stupid. Warning. Just picking any old song doesn't make it a worship song. It may be worshiping something, but unless it's actually overtly worshiping Christ and Him crucified, it's probably not really worshiping Him. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. We truly depend upon you and your generous contributions to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. We are now into the dreaded summer months, and... uh, (laughs) Oh, man... I, it's it's one of those things where every single year during the summer, well, giving kind of tapers off until uh, people get back to school. Well, the reality is is that our bills don't taper off. So, uh, you know, what we what we try to do here to help get us through the lean months is uh, is rely upon you and our crew members. And the idea is this: um, we, you know, we want to. We're in the in the middle of a drive to get 350 new members of our crew. We have about you know 180 ish left to go and uh, when we get to our achieve you know our, our achievable number here what that ensures is is that at least uh, at month after month after month we are guaranteed that we're going to make the minimum amount of money that we need in order to continue to pay our bills and do what we need to do so if you're not already a member of our crew visit our website fightingforthefaith.com click on the join our crew button and uh, fill that all out and uh, and then we'll uh, shortly after that we'll send you a link to download uh, this month's uh, featured ebook, Dr. Paul Kretzmann's popular commentary on the gospel according to St. Matthew. Fantastic, fantastic uh, item. Only available for our crew members for this month. And so, you know, head on over, do that. It will really help us out. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Do a little bit of news here. I haven't even told you what we're doing today. From the Christian Post, headline reads: Churches are more like fast food restaurants. One pastor thinks so. <laughs> Speaking of Stephen Furtick, anyway, um, this was written by Aaron Son of the uh, Christian Post. Uh, are churches becoming more and more like fast food restaurants? Um, Mega Church Pastor Brady Boyd asks readers and uh, the tough question that has plagued many pastors and congregations alike, touching upon a rather sensitive subject for most religious leaders. Have we as American pastors given up our calling as shepherds and unknowingly become fast food entrepreneurs who are building a religious business and not a church? The Colorado pastor posed on his blog, witnessing the ever-growing trend for pastors to be focused primarily on the numbers 
Number of people attending their church, Boyd desired to shift the internal conversation happening among leaders and spark some honest debate on the subject of church marketing and mass numbers. Quote, church is not a product to be consumed like a gym membership, but rather a whole holy gathering of sinners who are becoming saints because of grace. I would say, you know, uh, uh, Brady, uh, it's actually that we are we are saints by grace. It's not we're becoming, and that's kind of like the Roman Catholic concept. No, we truly are saints. We're those who are set apart. Um, uh, and uh, this is done by grace through faith on account of what Christ has done for us. Anyway, he, he continues, We want to be what Eugene Peterson calls a company of pastors and not a company of shopkeepers. I'm not a big fan of uh, Eugene Peterson, at least the stuff that he's done lately. Uh, early on, he wrote some decent books on pastoral stuff, but um, something went wrong after the message. Anyway, in efforts to refocus church leadership, Boyd outlined three key questions supplied with his own answers to evaluate the state of the church. Is it wrong to use marketing for our church? I don't think it's wrong to use marketing. I mean, marketing is just a, a means by which you're, you are inviting people to your congregation. The question is, you know, what's the hook? You know, what are you hooking them with? Um, and it says, what do we really want? And uh, do we really want, uh, do we really know the stories of our people? Attempting to answer the first question, the New Life Church senior pastor wanted to clarify first that marketing was not evil or carnal in itself, as long as leaders were not solely leaning on worldly principles while forgetting the primary disciplines that truly build the church. <clears throat> Emphasizing personal witness and prayer as the engine of the church not marketing itself. Boyd reminded uh, leaders that it was the unseen work of the Holy Spirit birthed in prayer that really gathered the lost. I would say the unseen work of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. Remember Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And Jesus himself makes it clear that the job of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin and unbelief. And he does that through means, through the means of preaching law and gospel, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, sin and grace. That's the idea here. Anyway, I, I, <clears throat> let me continue. Uh, he did not, however, dis discount the effectiveness of banners and local media to gather people as well. Because uh, he, here's the thing. When it, again, marketing could be as simple as you know sending out a postcard inviting people to your uh, congregation to attend an Easter service or a Christmas service. That's a form of marketing. Um, the, the, the question is, what's the hook? Because what you what you use to gather people is the thing that you're going to have to use to keep them. Um, you know, how are how are you marketing your church? I think is the question. Are you marketing your church as a place where people can come and uh, and by joining your church they have access to your church's uh, gym? They have access to your church's uh, amazing property where you can join a sports team. Uh, you know, uh, become a become part of a small group that suits your particular interest. I mean, we've got small groups for people who like flying kites. We got small groups for for uh, single moms who uh, who like uh, you know dressing e emo. I mean, it's it's you understand. What I'm saying how you know huh, when when you start getting into that kind of thing it's all about it's all about meeting uh uh the consumption entertainment uh desires of a particular market segment uh but when you preach Christ and him crucified for our sins and you proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus name and your and, and you you engage in sound biblical doctrine and in-depth biblical teaching that focuses on Christ and him crucified for our sins what ends up happening is is that God the Holy Spirit 
converts people across different market segments and brings them together as one body under one roof in a congregation. You know, the, the problem with this, the marketing strategies employed by the, uh, the Rick Warrens and the Bill Hybels and the, peop- the churches in their networks is, is that uh, they're, not, they're not really trying to universally uh, reach a whole bunch of people. They're trying to reach a, a particular market segment. And so everybody in those congregations tends to look like uh, the same. Yeah, they all look the same. Whereas where, where the gospel's at work, where the Bible is being correctly handled and uh, uh, law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins is really being uh, uh, done at word and sacrament, uh, the, the Holy Spirit draws uh, you know, people to himself. And in that congregation, you have people across different media tastes. You have people that cross uh, social, economic, uh, and even racial boundaries uh, so that under the same roof, you have a whole bunch of people who in the in, – you know, by every stretch of the market segment imagination wouldn't be drawn together. But the thing they all have in common is that they have been brought to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins and faith and trust in Jesus Christ um, through the through the through the means of grace, through the word of God. So, you know, if you're if you're marketing your church and, and what I mean by that is, is that, you know, come to our congregation. This is a place where you'll be fed the word of God, uh, where there's in-depth Bible study, things like that. Uh, that's one type, you know. That's one type of messaging. Whereas the other type is, you know, just becomes frivolous and silly, and actually divisive in many ways. But anyway, I, I, I digress. Um, uh, let's see here. Uh, he did not, however, discount the effectiveness of banners, local media to gather the people as well. While the gathering of people was not in any way damaging or misguided, the former English teacher wondered if leaders were only focusing on the numbers of attendees rather than the growth of existing members. Uh-huh. It's In fact, uh, Brady, I would even say that it's not that just that they're focusing on the numbers of attendees rather than the growth of existing members. Existing members who come to the pastor and say, what's the deal here? I'm not growing uh, this is ridiculous. Yeah, your sermons are as shallow as a as a kiddie pool in you know in the fall after we've drained it. And uh, if you uh, say that to your pastor, um, he's going to end up throwing you out and basically saying the church isn't about you. You need to leave. Yeah, that, uh, I've got too many examples of that uh, that I care to. Uh, Count. Anyways, he says, what is it that leaders really want, he asks. I know what most church leaders would tell me if I asked this question. They would say they want to make disciples, reach the lost, help the hurting, and they probably do. But what I hear leaders talk about most are attendance numbers. And because our mouth always betrays our hearts, I suspect that we have focused too much on how many are attending rather than how many are growing Boyd stated that his church in particular, which was formerly led by Ted Haggard, stopped focusing on overall weekend attendance numbers about 18 months ago. Instead of obsessing over attendance numbers, leaders at his church in Colorado Springs are concentrating on a different type of number. The number of baptized members, for one, as well as the number of people partaking in mission trips, the number of people joining small groups, the number of people becoming servant leaders. The result, a a liberating release from the temptation to compare themselves with other churches and a freedom from the impulse to perform solely for numbers' sake. What Boyd desired was not for people to tell him about attendance numbers, but to tell him about stories, for, for instance, accounts of redemption, healing, restoration, rescue. Yeah, mm mm-hmm. The, to the 44-year-old pastor, how many members were thriving was much more important than how many members were attending. In a neighborhood restaurant, there are lingering, unhurried conversations about stories he shared. In a fast food restaurant, there is a hurry to get to the next customer with short blurbs of discussions about a numbered meal on a well-organized wall menu. 
Everything in a fast food restaurant is about efficiency and excellence. Time is the master and we are the slaves. Revealing that church for the past 2,000 years has been centered on the story of Christ, Boyd challenged leaders to continue to do so, pausing to remember Christ in the sacraments and the interludes to celebrate the stories of a persecuted but joyful people. Church, he concluded, has always been about the gathering of the called out ones, not the gathering of potential customers who leaders hoped would have great customer service experiences. While Boyd did believe in excellence and efficiency, which fast food restaurants epitomized, it should not, he stressed, be at the expense of relationships and stories. We can do both, tell stories and build relationships in an environment that is warm and inviting. Currently, New Life Church is undergoing a series entitled This Is My Story, where over the next six weeks, pastors and leaders from around the world will share their story. Now, already I've got a problem. I'm, I don't think it's the job of the church to um, be talking about people's stories. It's to tell the story of Christ, to, to read the scriptures. Those are the stories that should be told in church. Anyway, this week, Jimmy Evans, a pastor, Bible teacher, and best-selling author, is scheduled to share his own testimony. Yeah, well, all right, so the, kind of a mixed bag here, but I think he's uh, that— uh, uh, Brady Boyd is asking the tough questions, and I think these are the question, the right questions that should be asked and answered. And so I thought that was worth passing along to you. But uh, interesting insight. I just wonder if if uh, he totally totally gets what uh, is going on here. Next story uh, from the um, also from the Christian Post headline reads: Southern Baptist head offers no apology on homosexuality stance. Praise God. Anyway, uh, Southern Baptist President uh, Bryant Wright met with a coalition of leaders from the LGBT groups who wanted the convention to apologize for what they described as harm, uh, the, the harm the SBC has caused by their teaching on homosexuality. Wright, who is the pastor of Johnson Ferry Baptist Church in uh, Myretta, Georgia, listened to them on Wednesday during the SBC annual meeting in Phoenix, Arizona, but stood firm on the scripture. A nine-person coalition, including representatives of Association of Welcoming and Affirming Baptist Faith in America and Truth Wins Out, protested outside the convention hall, and after requesting to deliver 10,000 signed petitions to write, he sat down at a roundtable with four of them. Baptist Press described the meeting as cordial. While Wright refused to budge on the issue, saying the scripture is clear, he did listen to the coalition's concerns as they made repeated attempts to link racism and a stance against homosexuality. Wright rejected the notion. Good. Obviously, we don't feel that there can be an apology for teaching sexual purity, Wright said, according to Baptist Press. As followers of Christ, our only authority for practicing our faith is the scripture. It's the word of God. As followers of Christ... It would be very difficult for us to betray our faith by ignoring what God says about sexual purity. The SBC statement on sexuality reads, quote, Homosexuality is not a valid alternative lifestyle. The Bible condemns it as a sin. It is not, however, unforgivable. The same redemption available to all sinners is available to homosexuals. They, too, may become new creations in Christ. Tom Hunter, a self-described Southern Baptist who has struggled with homosexuality and the author of Surviving Sexual Brokenness, What Grace Can Do, voiced his opinion about how the SBC should respond to the coalition's petition. Quote, The petition should be met with a commitment to pray for the members of these groups and the many they lead astray. Hunter wrote in a post on the SBC Voices blog, SBV's, SBCVoices.com, No apologies are in order, but our hearts should, uh, should respond to their brokenness. What an opportunity to show love and grace and a commitment to our beliefs and the hope that endures for wholeness. Wright attempted to do, to do just that by making the case that speaking against a particular sin doesn't mean the speaker hates the person who is in that sin. 
when I teach from the pulpit about adultery, I don't hate adulterers, Wright said. Just as we have people attending our local church that are engaging in homosexual activity, we have people attending our church who are engaging in adultery. I don't hate those people when I speak about adultery. I'm just hopefully loving them enough to speak the truth about what God desires for the uh, for the best for that person. I would say it needs to be a little stronger than that, that what they're doing is sinful and they need to repent and be forgiven. Anyway, the coalition contended that ex-gay ministries were harmful, but Wright said that there really have been people who left homosexuality through these ministries. Alan Chambers, president of Exodus International, a worldwide ministry that helps believers who have unwanted same-sex attraction to live a life that reflects the Christian faith, says there are tens of thousands of men and women who once identified as gay, but they found that change is possible. Hunter believes the petitions from the coalition should create an urgency for SBC churches to educate pastors, leaders, and members on how to minister to people who struggle with homosexuality. Our members need to know how to move beyond Leviticus and into 1 Corinthians, Hunter wrote, less abomination, greater grace. Uh, in the end, Wright was gracious in his refusal to apologize. Looking at, at sexual purity from the scripture, we're not going to be able to come to common ground, he added. I hope that you would respect that, we just, that we're just seeking to follow Jesus. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear that the SBC is holding their ground for now. But believe me when I tell you that the, uh, the, the homosexual forces that are, that are applying pressure on the SBC to change their tone and to apologize, they're not going to go away. They're going to return year after year after year after year after year after year. And each year that they that they return in the in the interim, they're going to try to convert more people in the SBC to their position, get their people into positions of power. And eventually, uh, via the democratic process, try to overturn and change the SBC. Just uh, these folks do not go away. They do not go away. So. If the SBC wants to continue with its stance, then it behooves every congregation, every pastor within the SBC to preach the full counsel of the Word of God, to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, to preach the same view of Scripture that Jesus had, and to and to proclaim boldly and give people the biblical backing and the apologetic arguments to be able to defend their faith as well as to lucidly and sanely and rationally and biblically defend the biblical position and make it clear that that's the case. Because what happens is with these homosexual groups is they take advantage of the democratic process within these churches in order to make doctrine a matter of de of democracy and vote. And over and again, we've seen when this becomes the case, when this happens— it's it, it takes them years. It takes them decades many times, but they're persistent. And many times these these groups have a way of winning because of their patience and careful, careful subversion, uh, you know, over time, uh, you know, to destroy the congregations and to destroy these uh, conventions. So my prayer for the SBC is, is that they are vigilant in making disciples and vigilant in proclaiming the full counsel of the Word of God, and vigilant in proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, and upholding and defending Christ's view of Scripture. That's the only hope that the SBC has to continue to put off these homosexual groups, because, like I said, they ain't going to go away. They're going to be there year after year after year until they finally take the SBC down. That's their goal. Okay, last uh, article for the day. And by the way, sermon review today, 
I'll just mention it real quick. We're going to be going down to Florida. We're going to, not literally, but we're going to be listening to a sermon from uh, a potential church. That's the uh, 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 Troy Gramling's church. Uh, they're not really a church. They're just a church in Potentia. But uh, during the summertime, I've uh, you know one of the things that happens is is that uh, many of the seeker driven churches they they do sermon series on the latest uh, movies. Well, one of the other things that happens is from time to time in the seeker driven uh, churches is you get an opportunity to see the up and coming quote talent. Uh, that's uh, the 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 next generation of leaders for the uh, these seeker driven churches. Well, we're going to be hearing uh, a sermon. Uh, from the uh, the uh, youth pastor there at uh, Potential Church in, uh, in in I think in Cooper City, Florida. But anyway, um, it'll give you an opportunity to take a look at the depth <laughs> of the up and coming uh, crop of leaders uh, currently in the farm league system in the uh, seeker driven uh, churches. And yeah, I guarantee you, you will be disappointed. Anyway, um, moving along, one last one uh, from the AlbertMuller dot com website. Headline reads, Theology, Therapy, Twitter, and the Scandal of the Gospel. Um, There is no shortage of perplexing realities in our world today, but counted among them must be the fact that many rather well-informed people seem to be shocked that Christians believe the doctrines of Christianity. (laughs) Over the weekend, uh, Representative Anthony Weiner announced that he would request a leave of absence from the House of Representatives in order to seek professional treatment in the aftermath of his sexting scandal on Twitter. Yeah, I've been, you know, I've been dutifully trying to avoid this topic. Anyway, uh, in the words of his spokeswoman, Lisa Heller, the congressman left last Saturday to seek professional treatment to focus on becoming a better husband and a healthier person. She continued, in light of that, he will request a short leave of absence from the House of Representatives so that he can get evaluated and map out a course of treatment to make himself well. That is a course now familiar to us all. As a matter of fact, it is now almost a reflex that people caught in moral trouble, especially related to sex, announce that they are seeking treatment for the problem. On the one hand, this just points to the fact that the triumph of the therapeutic heralded by sociologist Philip Reif in 1966 is now so ingrained in our culture that therapy appears to be the answer to every problem, including a moral crisis. Sadly, many Christians have accepted this worldview as their own, believing that their own deepest problems are therapeutic rather than theological in nature. To our shame, many books written by and for evangelical Christians reflect the therapeutic impulse rather than the appropriate biblical and spiritual concerns. In response to Representative Weiner's statement, I posted the following message on Twitter. Dear Congressman Weiner, There is no effective treatment for sin, only the atonement found only in Jesus Christ. As far as I know, Representative Weiner is not among my followers on Twitter. I did not assume that he was reading my posting. My message was mostly directed at my fellow Christians as a reminder of this very concern, that the American impulse to seek treatment when our real need is for redemption. This is the basic and central Christian belief. The Bible reveals that our need is not to find a way to make ourselves well, which we never can do, but to realize that we are sinners in need of a Savior. The Christian gospel is the message of redemption accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that is found in him and in him alone. The very essence of biblical Christianity is the knowledge that the real human problem is sin, not sickness, and that the only rescue is that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. 
In response to my tweet, Kathy Lynn Grossman of USA Today posted a series of tweets of her own, including this. Uh, Top Baptist voice chides Jewish wiener to choose Christ. Shades of Brit Hume telling Tiger Woods to quit Buddhism. Later, in response to a complaint on Twitter that she had slammed me by twisting my words, she responded, it's Mueller's slamming Jews here. In a separate article, she wrote this, quote, This reads as an evangelism tactic, writing in on the wiener headlines, but aimed at people like Jews like a wiener, Buddhists like Woods, and many others such as Wiener's Muslim wife who holds different ideas about salvation, different approaches to atonement. Seriously? It it is rather shocking to find that the religion and spirituality writer for USA Today surprised that a Christian believes what Orthodox Christianity has consistently taught, that every single human being is a sinner in need of the redemption that is found only in Christ. I never mentioned Judaism. Representative Wiener's problem has to do with the fact that he's a sinner like every other human being, regardless of religious faith or affiliations. Christians, at least those who hold to biblical and orthodox Christianity, believe that salvation is found through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone. Later, Kathy Lynn Grossman posted this in response to criticism. What Mueller said was atonement only through Christ. Non-Christians disagree, also have routes to restoring righteousness. The exchange on Twitter is another sign of how politically incorrect biblical Christianity is becoming in our times. Christians do understand that non-Christians disagree with the gospel. We also understand that other religions claim routes to restoring righteousness, but biblical Christians cannot accept these routes lead to redemption, and only righteousness that saves the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to the believer who is justified by faith in Christ alone. That is the gospel as declared in the historic Christian creeds and held out at least by his, uh, the historic claim by almost all Christian churches and denominations. It is a non-negotiable for the Christian faith deeply rooted in the teaching of Christ that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life, and that no one comes to the Father except for by me. See John chapter 14, verse 6. Non-Christians who have an understanding of Christianity may well find this claim offensive, but they should not find it shocking, even on Twitter. Amen and amen, he's absolutely right. Folks, yeah, Christianity has an exclusive claim, and whether people like that claim or not is really not uh, not the issue. The, the point is, is it true? Can you know it's true? Just because you have a claim to have, you know, to have a route to righteousness doesn't make it true. Jews have their own route. Muslims have their route. Uh, Buddhists have their route. The question is, do their routes actually uh, arrive at the place, at the destination that they claim that it gets to? Uh, well, considering the fact that uh, Muhammad's dead um, and uh, Buddha, well, dead, um, um, and uh, and Jews have rejected Jesus Christ as their savior, even though he was a Jew. Uh, but the thing is, Jesus rose again from the dead, claiming, you know, basically proving his claim to being the God of the Jews in human flesh. Um, I don't see anybody else on the religious landscape who even remotely has credentials like Jesus. I think it's best to go with what he said and and, and until there's better evidence out there, I, I think that's the best religious claim out there. In fact, Christianity stands or falls based on the resurrection of Jesus. If Christ is not raised, then we are to be pitied. We're fools. Um, and, re- and Christianity isn't true. But the grave was empty, and the eyewitnesses, well, they ate fish with Jesus and spent time with Jesus after he was dead uh, and raised again from the grave. Yeah, it, yeah, as far as religious claims goes, there's nothing that even remotely compares 
as far as evidence is concerned. All right. We are up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Sermon review in just a minute. Well, we'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Chris Roseboro here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says, Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. <clears throat> yeah, now, uh, what happens when uh, summertime rolls around in the seeker-driven churches? Well, one of two things. <clears throat> you either get sermons on the latest popular movies or the uh, youth pastor fills in for the uh, head pastor when he goes on vacation <laughs> yeah that's what's happening here The good, the bad, and the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon um, comes to us via Potential Church <laughs> in, uh, I think, uh, Cooper City, Florida. And normally it would be Troy Gramling um, presiding, but this time it's um, Youth Pastor Scott Mendenhall. 
Yeah, think of it this way. Um, when, when, you, when you look at mega churches, uh, you need to look at them as, uh, as big league baseball teams. And um, the big time is only for the select few. That would be those who, uh, who are able to ascend to the innovative vision casting ranks of senior CEO, head vision caster, slash pastor um, at these mega churches. Well, the thing is, is that they've got to have a farm club. They've, they've, they have to have a feeder system for, you know, raising the next generation of innovative vision casting, CEO-ish, uh, entertaining, uh, relevant pastors. <clears throat> and in the summertime, from time to time, uh, when the head pastor goes on vacation, you get an opportunity to look at the up-and-coming talent in the uh, minor league uh division otherwise known as youth ministry because i mean after all the many of these seeker driven churches they're really not much more than um youth groups for uh people who are chronologically older than the age of 18 so you want to know what the uh <clears throat> the up-and-coming talent is like well today you're going to get an opportunity you're going to get to see somebody who potentially could become the head of a potential church. Now, I, that's their name, potential church. I, I interpret that to mean that they're not really a church yet. They're just a church in potentia. Anyway, uh, the name of the pa- uh, the sermon is It's Complicated, uh, preached by youth pastor Scott Mendenhall. Youth pastor Scott Mendenhall. Soon to be, uh, on uh, someday, the head pastor of his own innovative vision-casting, seeker-driven, relevant Self-help center. Anyway, uh, here. Anyway, we're going to be getting relationship advice, and uh, pay attention to what he does here in the sermon because this is uh, the kind of the typical seeker-driven way of addressing uh, things. And what I mean by that is, is that they strip mine the Bible for relevant life tips, and uh, so you don't really get true teaching on uh, passages in context. Instead, what you get are. Um, Strip mind out of context verses designed to show the seeker just how life changing and relevant God can and his word can be. Yeah, the problem is, is that the handling of the word is done in such a way that we're just strip mining it for the same kind of tips and advice that you can get, well, from Oprah. Well, used to be able to get from Oprah, Dr. Phil, uh, the doctor's show. Yeah, you, you get what I'm saying. Anyway, here's um. Soon to be, up and coming through the uh, seeker-driven ranks, uh, youth pastor, soon to be head pastor somewhere, someday, Scott Mendenhall and his sermon, It's Complicated. Here we go. How are we doing today? Welcome to Potential Church. My name is Scott Mendenhall. I'm the global student pastor here at Potential Church, and I love what I do. I get to hang out with your kids all week long. I absolutely love it. I get it. Yeah, looking at him, I would not want my kids to hang out with him for a minute. Um, just to describe what I'm looking at here, Scott Mendenhall looks anorexic. I, I don't. He looks like he, skinny jeans, skinny graphic, form hugging thing. And the guy probably doesn't have an ounce of fat. Um, he, he's got his uh, right arm has is so tatted up. It's a, it's in the sleeve, uh, format. Yeah. They, I guess that's what they call that a sleeve. 
And he's got the, I think it looks like a soul patch and a Justin Bieber-ish type of haircut. And uh, the kid, the kid, he looks like he's in his mid to late 20s. And immediately I'm going, um, what happened here? Uh, well, chronologically, he's older than 18. That might have to deal with a problem here. But um, already I'm looking at this going, I'm, I wouldn't want my children being taught anything by this guy. Honored to be hanging out with you guys today. You know, we're, we're wrapping up the It's Complicated series, and I thought, you know, I'll come out here and download some information to you from my knowledge of how to deal with teenagers, all right? I, I'm not. We're going to get a teenager uh, relationship download from Scott Mendenhall. Not a parent of teenagers, uh, however, I work with them. I do have three kids, all right? I have three. All three of them are below the age of three. All right, it's, it's a party in my house every day with Sesame Street. It's awesome. Uh, but I, I, my oldest one is Legend. He is three. Then we have Epic, who turns two in August. And then Icon, who is three months old. Uh, yeah, that's right. You did hear that correctly. His children's name are Legend, Epic, and Icon. Reminds me of Frank Zappa. What did he name his children, Moon and Dweezil? Yeah. And Icon is our baby girl. She's awesome. Uh, but there's a big difference between a baby boy and a baby girl. She cries a lot more, okay? Instantly, I realize that she's more high-maintenance than the other two. I'm not saying girls are more high-maintenance. I'm just saying baby girls are, okay? I just, it starts very young, apparently. It must be in the... My girls were a lot easier than uh, my son when they were babies. Weird, huh? DNA somewhere. Uh, I'm not trying to offend any of the women in the place, but let's be honest. Uh, but anyways, it wasn't, uh, I, I, I had never had the desire to buy a weapon until uh, I had a, a little baby girl. Uh, the other day I was out shopping and I saw this three-month-old baby boy looking at her and I said, uh-uh, not with my baby girl. No way. I didn't know it started so young, you know? It was like he was checking out. Is it me or does it sound like that uh, Scott Mendenhall really uh, thinks his calling should be in the stand-up comedy routine I feel like I'm watching a, you know, an audition of The Last Comic Standing, and uh, it's clear that he won't be that one. But got her pacifier or something. I was like, no, no. I was like, I got to give me a gun or something, you know, because I got no, I don't, I carry guns here, so I got to get a real gun, you know. And so um, it didn't happen until Baby Girl came along. But it's a lot of fun uh, to, to have three little ones. I, honestly, when I say it's a part, I love walking in the house. And they go crazy. You know, I love watching them bouncing off walls. I think they're like Super Bowls, okay? They just bounce off things and they, you know, it's good. It's awesome. Uh, that's just how I am with them. But when it's complicated to be a parent, it really is. It's, it's you're having a rough day. You still got to be on your A game as mom or dad. It's very complicated. So I want to talk about that today. But if you're not a parent, don't shut me off. I know how it can be because uh, I can remember before I was a parent and someone was talking about parenting like a... Yeah, here's the here's the issue, uh, Scott. Um, the way you're dressed, the way you carry yourself, and the way you're behaving, uh, more like an entertainer than an actual pastor. Somebody who's, you know, been to seminary, knows the biblical languages, has proven himself capable and uh, and adept at uh, opening up the scriptures and rightly handling God's word, can find Christ in all the passages of scripture, Old and New Testament, um, is uh, somebody who, you know, who, who will preach the gospel to us. 
somebody who uh, right, who handles God's word and does it soberly is in it takes the job of the pastor seriously to preach the word in season and out of season. You know, just the way you're carrying yourself makes it seem to me like you're more interested in scratching itching ears than you are of actually fulfilling the duties of the office of pastor. Uh, you, you sound like you're fulfilling the duties of the office of stand-up comedian. Or, you know, um, yeah, maybe you should get your own show on Comedy Central, but I'm not so sure that um, I'm really just looking at you with the way you're talking, the way you're dressed and everything else, that I think that you're qualified to even be speaking about what it is that you're about to embark on. Um, yeah, and... So I, I I just may not download your download. You know what I'm saying? Great. What I'm about to talk on crosses the the field for everybody. All right. So don't tune me out yet. Uh, see if you can pull something out of it because it's really about relationships. So how many have ever mowed? You've mowed the the lawn before or grass? A few hands going up. I am from like Chicago area in the Midwest, and you mowed your own grass there. And uh, I remember one morning my mom woke me up and was like. Scott, today's the day. And I was like, you know you how that you don't want to wake up? Like, what's the day? What do you mean? Like, you get to mow. And I was, bam, up. I was like, yes, I get to mow. This is the greatest day ever. Oh, my goodness, I've waited for this day. Because in my mind, mowing was a step closer to getting my driver's license. Because you, you. Mowing a step closer to getting your driver's license. It's a chore, dude. Um, you know, I was never excited when my parents gave me a new chore. It didn't it didn't matter if it involved power tools or lawn mowers or anything like that. Oh boy. You you started out on the push mower and then you would graduate up to the riding lawn mower and you're just like, "Yes, I got to practice my 360 turns with the riding lawn mower. This is awesome. I cannot wait for this." And so, my Oh, well, that explains it. Riding lawnmower. Yeah, I didn't have one of those. I said, Mom, what do I need to wear? Do I need to like, dress up for this? You know, I want to make sure I do this right. And so I, I, Mom says, wear long pants or long, not plants, that'd be weird, uh, long pants uh, and long sleeves. Wear that. And she goes, because the grass is itchy. And so I was like, okay, cool. We'll put that on, went outside. And then the angel sang when I came around the corner and saw the lawnmower. It was like a hallelujah moment. It was like, whoa. That's the lawnmower that I'm about to use. And my mom says, how you start it. She pulls it twice. It starts. Squeeze this. It starts. And then she said repeatedly, mow in a straight line. No craziness, straight line. Well, that lasted about one time. And I started writing my name in the grass and uh, started making, trying to draw dinosaurs in the grass. Because, I mean, come on, seriously, straight lines. Who wants to do that? And so... Uh, that day, mom taught me how to start it. She left and did what mom loved to do when I was about 10 or 11. She went and sunbathed. She wanted that golden tan, you know. And so she went to lay down, lay out at the patio and had headphones in. And I'm there left with the lawnmower. And I'm just talking to her. All right, lawnmower, be good to me. If my foot accidentally gets underneath there where that blade is, shut off. Okay, don't cut my foot off. Uh, and so I, I, I'm sitting there. I go to starting and I'll pull it. And you pull it, and, and, and it doesn't start. I'm like, man, you just started from mom. And I was just pulling it, pulling it, and it won't start. So I was like, develop that uh, two-hand technique. You know, you put both hands on it, and you pull it, and you pull it. And because this shoulder really gets sore, you pull it the other direction. You're trying to pull, and it's not working. So I developed a further technique, which you can use as well. It's the two-hand pull and a jump, okay? So you count down, three, two, one, so everything's ready. And so it's three, two, one, start! <sighs> 
And it, it doesn't always happen on the first one. So you're like, okay, again, I'll get it on the second one. Three, two, one, and start. And it didn't start. I was like, man, if that technique doesn't. Yeah, you notice what happens, how a sermon can go bad just from the start. I mean, because uh, we're not in God's word, are we? At least not yet. I, I'm sure he'll pull out some really, really relevant, applicable life tip verses for us. But at the moment here, we're just being regaled with uh, this story about his first lawn mowing experience and the wisdom of the uh, pull jump start technique. Um, wow. It doesn't work. I don't know what else is going to. So uh, my little brain clicked. Oh, wait. It requires gasoline. And so I checked, uh, you know, the gas tank, and it's empty. So I was like, oh, yeah, okay. So I went back to the garage, got the big five-gallon container of gas, brought it there, and same problem. I can't get the stupid lid off the thing. I'm like, what's the deal? Tried the one-hand technique, went to the two-hand technique, and finally it popped off. But the pressure in the gas that was keeping the lid on made the gas erupt into my face, just right in my eyes. And I was, ah! My eyes are melting inside my head. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I, I I do think that um, he spent more time trying to figure out the technique of the leading stand-up comedians than the uh, the greatest expositors of God's word. I I, I call me cynical. D- call me cynical. I, I know that I sometimes can ride people down, but. Um, I don't think that in Scott Mendenhall we have a budding Charles Spurgeon. I, I just am pretty sure that uh, Charles Spurgeon, um, a John Wesley, a Walt, uh, a Walter Martin, a, a Martin Luther, a John Calvin. Um, yeah, no, that's probably not um, the uh, the fate, the future of um, Scott Mendenhall. You know, Bill Cosby, maybe. Um, he still has a little bit of working to do on his technique. Maybe, maybe a Bill Engvall. Yeah, he's um, he's more akin to a Bill Engvall or a Bill Cosby than he is to a Charles Spurgeon or Martin Luther. You know, yeah, yeah. Get what I'm saying here? They're like jello in there now. I can't see a thing. You know, I'm just freaking out. Lost control. I was like screaming for my mom. I was like, Mom, where are you? I can't see a thing. And so I, I was like, she's not hearing me because she's rocking to Elvis Presley and her headphones, you know. And I'm like, man, darn you, Elvis. And so I, I'm like, begin to walk to her. But, I, you know, I can't see because my eyes are like burning. Like if you've never had gas in your eye, it burns like none other, okay. I've had other fluids in my eyes. They sting like soap when you're washing your face. And some soap. That stings, but nothing like gasoline, okay. And so I'm, I'm going to get to my mom, and I trip over the stupid lawnmower. No angel singing at that moment about the lawnmower. I'm just in the ground going, those darn devils. And then I start crawling to my mom. I- D- does this, um, I don't even want to call it a sermon illustration. Does this story have a point that has anything to do with God's word at all? get to her, I'm like, Mom, Mom, my eyes, I got gasoline in it. And then my mom asked the next question, which is not important at all. How'd you get gas in your eyes? Why is that important right now? The important thing is, is how do we get the gas out of my eyes? When we remove the gas from my eyes, then we can tackle how I got the gas in my eyes. What is that about? Like, why is it when you're, you're cut, you know, you're bleeding from the arm, you're going up to someone, oh, I need, I need a bandage. And they go, let me see. And you see, like, well, how'd that happen? No. 
The thing we are focusing on right now is keeping the red substance in my body. Okay, if we can do that, we're going to be great. And then I'll tell you how I cut it. And so uh, my mom's like, all right, let's go inside. We go into uh, the bathroom. She puts me into the shower and just rinses my eyes out. And she calls like some poison control people. Hey, my, my son got gas in his eyes. What can we do? And they asked the same question. Oh, how'd that happen? Like searching for what? My mom's going to answer. Well, you know, I threw gasoline in his face, and I was going to follow that up with a, a match, but he ducked. You know, right? I mean, seriously, just tell us how to get it out. And so my mom comes and goes, hey, you got to stand in the shower for an hour and a half and rinse your eyes. After an hour and a half, if your eyes still burn, then we go to the emergency room. So a guy that has ADD self-diagnosed, I'm staring at a faucet of water just hitting me in the eyes. You know, I'm just like, this is what I have to do for an hour and a half? Talk about, like, torture. I'm just there. I'm like, Mom, how much longer? She's like, 30 seconds have gone by. How about now, Mom? Only 30 more seconds. You're 60 seconds into this event. I'm like, wow, we're going to be here a long time. And there I did flush my eyes out. And eventually, the stinging stopped, and it, it was far better. Man, my eyes were bloodshot for a few days. My eyes like were, felt like they were bruised. It was crazy what happened. If you have it on your list of things to do to experience gasoline in your eyes, don't do that, okay? It's really not fun. I actually have both substances back here. I have a, a container of water and a container of gasoline here, uh, just in case you were confused of what the difference in the two are. Uh, I've had water. Apparently, we're going to get a scientific lecture now on the difference between the properties of uh, gasoline and water. He does have them both in small, clear glasses. In my eye a heap of times, okay? Uh, I swim with my eyes open. You know how awkward that is when you're in a pool with your eyes closed, you're swimming, you run into somebody's thigh? You're like, oh, I didn't see you there. I don't like that awkwardness, so I swim with my eyes open, okay? Because you run into some dude's hairy legs, it's like, ugh. And you got to stand up, sorry, and they're going to go, that's okay. But in their mind, they're like, learn how to swim, bro, seriously. So water doesn't affect the eyes at all. It's kind of nice to be able to see where you're going. Gasoline, however, not good to the eyes. The difference in the two, water is odorless and tasteless. For you that say you like the taste of water, you're fooling yourself. It doesn't taste, okay? What you do like, however, is the refreshness of water. It is refreshing. Uh, and, and they're, they're Oh, thanks for correcting me on that. Wow, you're... I thought I liked the taste of water all these years. It, I, I, I had no idea I was liking the refreshness of it. There's not much more to say about water other than it's odorless, tasteless, and it's transparent. Gasoline is transparent. just want to remind you all that uh, uh, Scott Mendenhall here is a triple A uh, uh, talent uh, in the up-and-coming Seeker-Driven Farm League. Uh, he's going to be a senior pastor of uh, Seeker-Driven Church someday, just... Wait. <laughs> with a yellowish tint to it. Uh, it. It comes from crude oil, which you pull out of the ground. Then there's a process to make it gasoline. Uh, it smells. It tastes awful. And, and then it's used to, you know, make your cars go. That's the difference between the two. One has a very opposite effect than the other when you deal with fire. You put water on fire, what happens? It goes out. You put gasoline on it explodes it gets now this is not exactly true I, I i need you know for you know as a public service announcement to you the fighting for the faith listener i do think it's important to recognize there are different types of fire and there are some fires that you don't want to put water on for instance a grease fire yeah 
Water and a grease fire, no bueno. That that is a formula for an explosion. So you don't want to do that. Keep that in mind. You need you need to have uh, a a properly certified uh, fire extinguisher in your home that can handle the different types of fire. You don't want to just throw water onto a grease fire. Water on an electrical fire, bad idea. So you get what I'm saying here. Yeah, you know, I, I I feel like you know, being the fact, being that it's true that I'm older than Scott Mendenhall, been been on the planet a few more years than he has, have a bit more uh, wisdom, if you know what I mean. That I, I think it's important to warn you all that you, you got to be careful with water and fire. You have to determine what kind of fire it is first. But I digress. Bigger, it's bigger than you ever intended it to to get because you chose to use the gasoline. And what I want to say is that you walk around daily with both containers in your hands. You have a thing of water and a thing of gasoline. And dependent on the situation at hand, you either choose to dump water on the situation or gasoline. Gasoline is a representation of someone reacting, and the water is somebody choosing to respond. Ah, okay. So now we've got we've got one of the primary examples here. The the whole point of the lawnmower um uh stand-up comedy sketch uh, it was to to get to one of the central metaphors of this uh of this sermon and that is is that uh that the the water and gasoline represent two types of reactions uh when dealing with people in relationship and one could be explosive and the other not ah okay wow this is deep you think jesus uh you know taught like this in a given moment. If we respond, we take a moment, think about it, and then we come back and say what we need to say. To react is just to lash right out immediately. And in parenting, we have these moments all the time. Let's paint a scenario really quick. Two weeks ago, on Thursday, Dwayne Wade's brand new shoes came out. Uh, they sold out within an hour. A lot, there was lines out all inside the athletic stores to get this shoe. Now, some of your, your boys might have wanted the shoe, and, and maybe... It's, the situation went down like this. Mom, Dad, I need the Dwayne Wade shoes. Not want. It's like, I need them. If I don't get them, I'm going to die. I need them. And then your response would be, you know what? We don't have the money this month, maybe next month. And then they react like, man, I knew you hated me. I knew my sister was your favorite. Why do you, why do you treat me like this? I'm like the slave around here. I got to eat the scraps. And they react. And now you have a choice. Now, if you have a child that does this, uh, you got bigger problems than shoes. Yeah, just saying, you know. In that given moment on, are you going to respond or react to it? And in, in, in the reaction for a parent would be, you're right. You're my second favorite. You smell because you don't take a shower, and your sister's far cooler than you because she's smart, and you're not. That now, if you're reacting this way to your child who's reacting that way, um, yeah, parenting classes are probably in order, and you're not you're gonna want to get them from somebody who's actually qualified to uh, help you with this problem. You don't want to go to um, a youth pastor who wants to be a stand-up comedian. He probably is not gonna really be able to help you. It's reacting, okay? And then all of a sudden, you just poured gasoline on a moment, and it's out of control. And for you, you've got to take it beyond the shoes. Maybe for you, it's a, your kids want to go out somewhere, and you said no. Maybe you've got a daughter that wants to date this guy, and you're like, no, he's trouble. And, and, and the reacting happens, and it explodes. And all of a sudden, you're in a spot in a relationship with your kids going, how did we get here? And if you backtrack how you got there, it's all because of what you said. 
and how you said it. You chose to react instead of respond. No, I think if you you have to go back farther. I mean, I mean, you're going to do a, a true postmortem. It goes all the way back to the guy who made the shoes and didn't make them in proper enough quantity and made them so expensive. You got to put some blame on him too. At least that's how I see it. Now, some of you are still sitting there scratching your head. I don't know if you're scratching your head because I'm speaking way too fast, and you're like, hold on. No, I think it has more to do with the fact that I'm getting relationship advice from a guy who um, looks like he escaped from Justin Bieber's uh, band. Uh, yeah. What did you say? I got you at hello, and I've been confused ever since. So let me, let me illustrate it with my new, my new skill that I learned thanks to Google, all right? I Googled this uh, technique, and so, I mean, I'm sure nothing wrong will go or happen here because, I mean, it's Google, right? Come on. Don't you learn everything from Google these days? Like, I, I, on my resume from now on, I'm just going to put, I graduated from the school of, uh, of Google. I can believe it. Um, I just want to let you all know that he's going to do something dangerous. Do not do this at home, even if you've Googled it. I'm going to show you what happens when you spit gasoline on this, all right? He is now holding a lit torch. <sighs> really? You, this is what you're going to do. You're going to demonstrate to us what happens when you spit gasoline on a lit torch? Do you think that there's anybody in the room or listening to this podcast or watching your church's video podcast of this sermon who doesn't already know what's going to happen when you spit gasoline on an open flame? Uh, I mean, serious, what could go wrong with that? Google says it's okay as long as I follow these instructions. I hope someone that wrote the instructions didn't leave one important instruction out, like, don't swallow. Um, but anyways, we're going to show you so you get what the idea of what happens when you react instead of responding. So I'll put some of this in my mouth. I'm going to blow it on there. Here's the deal. You can't blink or you'll miss it. Okay, I'm going to blow fire. It's like, whoa, wow. Check this out. Okay. Now there you go. He didn't. He, I I've seen better fire uh, flamethrowers. Um. Uh, yeah. Uh. That. Uh, oh man. Seriously. Serious. Ser serious. You missed that because it happened so fast. You have instant replay. <laughs> What's it taste like to have a bunch of gasoline in your mouth? <laughs> having a hard time breathing. We can, we can slow it down and let you see really quick what your eyes just missed. We'll rewind it, and you get to see what, what you missed because you blinked. All right, check this out, what I learned from Google. Yeah, they have an instant replay showing the fireball created by the gasoline and the open flame being spit out by his mouth. There you go, much larger than you probably thought it was. That's what gas does. Yes, thank you, Google. Yeah, thank you. I am so, uh, yeah, big applause. I had no idea that that's what gas did on an open flame. Whew. Yeah, I be I better start taking notes. This is gonna change my life. Saving my life today. Now let's show you the difference when you use water. Water has a very different uh, effect to this. Check this out. Yeah, hopefully you can get that the taste of the gasoline out of your mouth now. 
Oh, wow. It almost, almost put, puts it out. It's not- yeah, almost put the whole flame out. Wow. I had no idea. Oh, my life is changing as we as I'm listening to this. Oh, this is going to make everything so different in my life. I had no idea. Not impressive at all. There you go. That's how you are a flamethrower breathing guy. Let me put this out so we don't burn down the place. There you- Again, just a reminder. Mendenhall here is um, he, he's a triple A uh, farm league uh, seeker driven pastor talent guy. He's coming up through the ranks. It's just a matter of time before he has his own stage. You have it. You got it right now. You know how to do it. I'm a student of Google. I mean, seriously, all of your not much of the Bible, but yeah, OK. Kids are a student of Google as well. I learn more through Google than I do any encyclopedia ever, not knowing if it's real or not. It's just say that's what Google said. But you saw what happens. You blow fire on or you blow gasoline. And it, goes, it got really big. There's a lot. It was it was three times the same size of the flame. And when you react in a given situation, the situation just got larger because you react. It says this in Proverbs chapter 15. Okay, now here comes the uh, we, we we've got a proverb. He's going to give us a few sparse out of context verses here, and and keep keep this in mind. Okay, um, what we're going to hear uh, from this proverb is actually you know it's it's a proverb and it's a wise saying. There's it's some decent advice. But over and again, people miss the point of Proverbs because the point of Proverbs really is at the beginning of it. And what I mean is this, is that when you, when you, when you understand biblically that, um, that the, the purpose of the law is to condemn us and to show us our sinfulness and our need for a Savior, then you begin to realize that the commands in God's Word they 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 really end up cutting us down okay and so when you read the commandment thou shalt not kill thou shalt not lie thou shalt not steal thou shalt have no other gods before me when you when you do an inventory of your life uh in and look at what's going on in light of those commandments you sit there and you go ouch hmm uh yeah, um, I've I've messed this one up. Uh, there's a problem, and at that point you realize, yikes! If God's going to hold me accountable for not living up to this standard, then I'm in trouble. I'm in, I'm liable to the wrath of God. I'm the the fires of hell are licking your feet, if you know what I mean. And so when you come to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs is a book that is. Only, only, listen to me on this one, it's only for Christians. Because here's the deal. You have to understand that the primary purpose of the law, according to Romans, is to convict you of your sin and show you your need for a Savior. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. And the law is powerless. It's absolutely powerless to help you to achieve it. So when somebody reads Proverbs, uh, it doesn't matter if it's from Proverbs 11, Proverbs 15, Proverbs 31, it doesn't matter. All it's going to do to somebody who is a non-believer is condemn them. It's going to give them a picture of what uh, of what it looks like to be obedient to God, but it's not going to give them any power to achieve it. And people and people who wrongly think that God is up in heaven crossing his arms waiting for you to get your act together and uh, he's not going to bless you or whatever and that the reason you know you get what i'm saying they're going to try they're going to basically set out on this on you know on this rat wheel 
to try to accomplish these things, and it, as a result of it, it'll either wear them out to the point that where they're you know they're ready to chuck the Christian faith altogether, or or worse, it'll make them an, into a Pharisee. Uh, legalistic self righteousness will abound. But the biblical use of the Proverbs is for Christians only. And and let me explain it this way. The primary use of the law is to convict you of your sin. There's another use of the law that's the use used by the government. This God puts the sword into the hands of uh, local governments it's in order to keep people from beating up on each other, to keep sin, uh, hu- human sinful nature in check. Okay. And so that you know, those are the those are two uses of the law, but there's a third use of the law that's only for Christians. It shows us what a good work is, and the proverbs themselves, the proverbs themselves at the beginning of this, actually make this point. Let me explain. Proverbs chapter one verse one: The proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing. In righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge, and discretion to the youth, to let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. Proverbs 1 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. If you, the, you, the Proverbs are not going to help you unless you are first brought to repentance and the forgiveness of your sins, because that's really what it truly means to fear the Lord. You are brought to repentance of your sins and your wickedness and the forgiveness of your sins won by Jesus Christ and his death for you, his shed blood for you on the cross. When you are brought to that point, you are regenerated. You have a new nature, and that new nature cannot help but do good works. And the Proverbs give the Christian the wisdom and instruction in what a good work looks like in very practical and applicable ways. But the key to all of this is right in the beginning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, notice here, Scott Mendenhall, he's, he's trying to, he's, you know, basically he's following the, the uh, seeker-driven idea here that in a sermon you, you find the big idea. What's the big idea that you want to accomplish in, this, in the sermon? So this is a sermon series on relationships. And Scott Mendenhall has relationships with, with uh, teenagers who are, who, who, well, let's just say they're prone to having emotional outbursts when they're not happy with the way things are going. Um, and so he's, at this point, the big idea, the big idea is, is that you don't want to react when your teenager is, 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 well, misbehaving. You want to respond. You don't want to apply gasoline to the situation. You want to apply water to the situation to calm things down. Now, that's the big idea of the sermon, right? Now, the problem, and, and once you've got the big idea, because you know, this is a relationship uh, series, um, then you go and you look in the Bible for the practical, for the verses that can be applied to this situation, okay? And uh, and then the idea then is, one of the primary ideas is that the seeker-driven methodology is these sermons are done this way on purpose in order to show the non-believer that uh, God wants to change their lives, make it better, that we care about your needs. And once 
they feel like Jesus is making a difference in their life. Well, they, they've they've applied these little tips and principles. Then you know they can see that their lives are better as a result of coming to church, and they'll and they'll want to know more about Jesus. That's the primary objective here. That's why he's strip mining. That's why he's doing what he's doing. The problem is, is that the proverbs, by their nature, are a form of the law, and they condemn, because the person who hears that verse from Proverbs fifteen who hasn't been doing that or has been doing the opposite thing of that the proverb recommends, they're going to sit there and go, ouch, um, yeah, I haven't been doing that. And at that point, God's law is convicting them of their sin. And what they need to hear is the gospel. Okay? So don't think that you can just tiptoe through the book of Proverbs and, 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 and it's going to make your life rosy. If you do not have a proper understanding of law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, what the purpose of the law is and how it cannot save you unless you keep it perfectly, and its primary job is to condemn you. Um, if you don't understand that, then what's going to happen is, is you're going to you're, you're going to walk into the book of Proverbs thinking that it's some meadow, you know, with and it's got flowers and you can see birds flying overhead and fluffy clouds and a tree off in the distance and you think, oh, the book of Proverbs is just the the best thing ever. Oh, I want to run, and so you start running through the meadow and singing, you know, the the song, "The hills are alive with the sound of music," and all of a sudden, boom. You know, they, you find out that the whole field is is uh, laced with landmines and it's blowing you to bits. That's the idea here, um, because it's completely chalk with third use of God's law, which is still law. It gives advice on how to love God and to love neighbor. And let me read Proverbs one seven again: The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You do not have true fear, love, and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Proverbs is going to destroy you. And it says, fools despise wisdom and instruction. And how does Proverbs describe the fool? The fool is the one who says in his heart, there is no God. So already, the the Proverbs kind of give you the key to interpreting it. And this is a book that's dangerous, dangerous, dangerous. If you do not understand law and gospel correctly, this book could literally mess you up. It explains totally what you just saw. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. That's truth. That's what the Bible yeah. is saying. That yes, that's truth. A gentle word turns away wrath, right? Um, And now... Here comes the part where God's law kicks in. How well have you done that? How many times has a situation gone wrong and you've brought to the situation a gentle word and turned away wrath? How many times have you added gasoline to the fire and watched the whole situation burn? You get what I'm saying here? So everybody listening to this can think about times in their life when they have not, have not acted correctly because Proverbs 15 reveals 
true love towards God and true love towards neighbor, and you realize, yikes, I haven't done this. Now who's going to save you? A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So in those moments as a parent, and you're faced with you react or respond, even though your kid might have just reacted, you've got the choice to respond. Now, here's the weird thing. Scott, this is church, right? You, you got, oh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> potential church isn't a church yet. They're just a church in potential. But you guys want to be a church someday. Um the Proverbs uh, chapter 15 is found in the Bible. All scripture is breathed out by God. So uh, there is a God in heaven who who has noted the fact of every time we haven't done this. Which means you're not correctly dealing with the passage because this passage does reveal sin, yours and mine, as well as telling us what a good work is. But it doesn't give us the power to do it. And, you know, here you're talking about relationship advice. Um, yeah, the problem is the verse that you're, you've ripped out of context here and, you know, made, you know, that you want everyone to know how to apply so relevantly to make their lives better. Um, yeah, okay, sure. Uh, it, it, let's say that everybody there decides that they're going to do, they're going to give it a good college try. I wonder if you've been to college, but um, if you, they're going to give it a good college try, and they're going to really, 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 really try hard to do this, and and um, and and they they meet with some success at, uh, at at taking this advice, and and their lives improve as a result of it. What are you going to do about that nagging voice in the back of their head going, you know, that verse that he read was in the Bible? Um, does it matter to God that before I started? applying this advice that um, I was doing the exact opposite. You, you've evacuated the scripture of the sin element, the rebellion element, the wages of sin element, the wrath of God element, the judgment and justice of God element, uh, in which all of these things you have to understand properly if you're going to understand the mercy and the grace of God. So, I mean, are you really helping them? Are you really making their lives better? In fact, you may actually be causing them to go, yikes. Um, yeah, maybe things aren't as rosy and easy with God as I thought they would be. And you've got to make up your mind which one you want to do because if you react, situation gets bigger and you're, you're in a big fight and then there's a relationship fallout and you're sitting there, oh, how did I get here where my kid hates me and I'm not very pleased with them? And all of a sudden you rewind and it's a bunch of people reacting instead of responding. See, today I want to help your relationship with your kids to not be so complicated. Now, remember when I said if you... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, listen, I, I could go anywhere for advice on how to have a better relationship with my kids. I mean, that's what therapists are for. They, I mean, but um, you're, this is church. What about relationship with God? D hello? Not a parent. This can be very impactful in your own life because, you know what, we, we react to our boss, our employees... Now, you do realize that everybody has a relationship with God. Everybody. It's either a good one or a really bad one. That's all there is to it. And the difference is Christ and, and tr basically repentance and the forgiveness of sins. We react when people are driving down the road. We react all over the place. This isn't just for moms and dads. This is for all of us. This is when you're dealing with your husband and you want to, you, you know, you want to poke him in the eye with something hot. 
that you got to decide if you're going to react and respond otherwise or shake. Which, I mean, you threw that out as a laugh line, which is another example of our sinful nature. That's a murderous thought, which makes us liable to the wrath of God. Jesus himself says that murder comes out of the heart. What you described is Jesus' definition of murder. Yes, I want to do that right now. Do you have one of those? No, that's reacting. And so, again, a gentle answer turns away wrath. It, it, it diffuses the moment. That's responding, a gentle answer. You know, with your kid, they respond or they react in that moment. Mom, you hate me. Your response is, hey, 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 let's talk about this in a few minutes. Let's go, go to your room. Let's not talk for a minute. Let me think. Because then you have a moment to, to have that gentle answer that turns away the wrath. Because if you react immediately, because the skin wants to react immediately. The skin doesn't want to wait. The skin wants it to go out fast and furious and want to hurt them. Hurt <clears throat> the skin? Is this some new euphemism for our sinful flesh? Hurting people hurt people. When our kids hurt us, when they say something that's hurtful to us, what do we want to do? We want to hurt them right back. Not, not because we're bad parents. It's just our skin wants to do that. Uh, it's just our skin. It makes it sound like... Man, I, my life would be a whole lot easier if I just didn't have skin. This doesn't sound like a biblically accurate description of our sinful nature and our problem. And so we have got to make the choice to respond instead of, uh, of reacting. Uh, just the other day, as I was playing this teaching, I, I had taken the legend, my three-year-old, down to the pool, and we were swimming, and a neighbor brought down a shark to swim. Going to regale us with another personal story told in the uh, genre of stand-up comedy. Ah, yeah. Don't, don't you feel yourself just growing closer to Jesus with each passing word? With not a real shark, don't be alarmed. Uh, a toy shark. Uh, and it was down there in the pool, and, and Legend wanted to play with it. So Legend asked, hey, can I play with the shark? He's, yes, yeah, blah, blah, blah. now he's playing with the shark. Legend begins to bite the shark. And because I don't want Legend to think it's okay to bite real sharks or fake sharks, I said, don't bar- bite the shark. Um, is this a common problem in Florida, kids biting real sharks? Yeah, we don't have any sharks in Indiana. I I just want to let you all know that, at least none that I've seen. Um, nowhere in our rivers or our lakes, ponds. Anyway, um, so I, yeah, I just haven't seen any of the local kids, you know, going out there biting the local fish or the sharks or anything of nature. (sighs) Hey, stop biting the shark. I don't want you to rip the shark in half. I said it very calm. I turn around, turn back at him. He's biting the shark again. Legend, bro, what do you got, ADD? Stop biting the shark. Don't bite. I say that, I'm like, I have it. Uh, Don't bite the shark, bro. And so he goes back to spin. Third time, he bites the shark. I'm like, legend, come here. He jumps out of the pool. I was like, bro, what did I say about the shark? Don't bite the shark. Why are you biting the shark? I don't know. (laughs) Three years old answering with, I don't know. I don't know why I'm biting the shark. And I was like, I was frustrated. I was frustrated because he's biting somebody else's shark. I could feel myself getting a little bit amped at my three-year-old, and I was like, legend. Makes you wonder, uh, when will these seeker-driven guys jump the shark? Just sit here for a moment. And, I, and he didn't want to. I was like, just sit there for a moment. You can sit next to me. And it, really, it's me training myself because really biting a shark isn't that big of a deal. But when he's 13 years old and it's a really big deal, I don't want to react. I always want to respond. So it's really a training moment for me as dad to say, sit there so I can think about how do I leverage this moment to teach my son 
what's the right thing to do here? Because it's not his toy. You know the deal. You don't want him biting somebody else's toy because if he bites it in half, I've got to go buy somebody else a shark. I don't want to buy somebody else a shark. But he doesn't understand that. And so we, I sat there. And then when he sat there after a bit, I pulled him up and I said, Legend, here, here's the deal. I don't want you biting his shark because it's not ours. We've got to treat people's things nice. And just had that conversation with him. It was really calm. He, he said, okay, Dad. And he, he, on his own, went and gave the shark back to the neighbor boy. And it was because I chose to respond. Had I reacted, I'm like, legend, get over here and bring a toy. I'm going to spank you. You know, it's like that would be the reaction in the moment. It's so easy to get there. But to just get him to sit there and let me think for a moment allows me to leverage the moment to teach my three-year-old what I need to teach him. So when he's 13, I've taught myself how to respond. And I've taught him how to listen to Dad. Now, I know it's not that easy when you've when you got 13-year-olds, okay, or teenagers. You're going, yeah, I wish that was that simple. I understand that, but I'm really trying to teach myself how to be a dad when that comes around and trying to use biblical principles. There's some other things out of the Bible that talks about this. This, this is not in your outlines. It'll be on the screens here. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 28. If an idiot keeps his mouth shut, some might think he knows something. They might guess he's weighing it all up to spout something profound. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 28. If an idiot keeps his mouth shut, some might think he knows something. They might guess he's weighing it all up to spout something profound. What's the Bible saying here? You want to be wise? You want to be somebody that people look at and go, now there's a wise person. Here, here, here's a simple, simple thing you can do. Just shut up. <laughs> well, actually, no, that's not what the verse that you, that you just quoted said. It it said, if you're an idiot, people will think you're wise if you keep your mouth shut. So, <laughs> I, I, <clears throat> moving along. Don't say anything. The, the, the more you stay quiet, it gives you a chance to think. So when you do speak, it's profound. Because most of us are just quick to react and we're just spouting things and we begin to look like idiots. And if we can just keep our mouth shut and think before we speak, all of a sudden, when you speak, it's going to be profound. But it's so easy to, to just react and go after it. Uh, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 16. Again, it's not in your outlines. It'll be on the screen. An idiot's quick to fly off the handle, but the sordid bite their lips at some cheap jabs. An idiot is quick to fly off the handle, but the sordid bite their lips at some cheap jabs. Now, I want to point this out. Again, I, I think he's reading the message paraphrase. I, I'm not familiar with the translation he's working from, if it's a translation at all, but... The way he, I mean, here, I mean, these proverbs are wrecking people. I mean, because here's the deal. It's not that it's just giving good advice. You know, it's not saying if you want to do this, this is a good thing to do. It's saying you're an idiot if you've done the opposite. So, I mean, here he's preaching verses that are calling people in the audience idiots. And it's, and he's just, the, the point's completely lost on him. Wow. It's this. Let's bring that to reality. Uh, you got, you know, South Florida, we have some amazing drivers down here. That's sarcasm. It's, it's the, the people that are in the left lane and they need to make a right hand turn now. And they decide, well, it's okay. I'll just cross all four lanes of traffic. No one will care at all. 
This is a great idea. And so they just do it. They don't even check any mirrors and they just go right over. And all of a sudden they really irritate somebody as they cut them all off. And the person that just got irritated decides to be the idiot and is quick to fly off the handle. And what do they do? They come up and ride them on the bumper. They pull around them, cut them off. They slow back down and then they give them the finger. And I don't mean they cut off their pointer finger and say, I got a gift for you for great driving. Here it is. It's my pointer finger. No, we're talking about the middle finger. I don't know why it's so offensive when someone does that because we all have one. I'm looking at mine right now and I am not offended by it, okay? I don't know why it is when somebody can, go, can drop four fingers, all of a sudden we're like, oh man! He just gave me the finger. I want to mess that guy up. You know, we all got it, okay? We got it. You can do the same thing to yourself. Why is it not as offensive? I have no idea. And so if those people react, and what do they look like? Most of the time I shake my head and go, man, that person just lost their mind. They, they, they are they're reacting instead of responding. Had they been able to see themselves, they go, man, I just look like an idiot. I just gave. Right. When people do that to you, you immediately pull up Proverbs 15 and go, oh, that's so sad they're reacting rather than responding obviously their parents didn't teach them and they don't obviously go to a secret driven mega church because if they went to a secret driven mega church they would have heard that verse and they would know that their life would be so much better if they just responded rather than reacted whatever a middle finger i just don't understand how that's so offensive i understand what it's supposed to mean but i just like it's a finger I, I, i thought you know to help us out though it would be nice if we could Use the, the thumb up, down, and middle as the grade point for grading uh, people's driving ability. Because the middle finger... Yeah, good luck on getting this one to take off and go viral. Yeah, I don't think anyone's going to follow this one. It doesn't really express the disappointment in their driving. It says that you're a crazy person. It doesn't really say, hey, what you just did was a bad idea. So I think from now on, when someone cuts you off, just pull up alongside them and go, hey, not so good, buddy. What you just did, not good. The thumb meter says bad. All right, it says bad. And you, you, can, you can give, okay. It's an applause line. See, it's just like a stand-up comedy routine. It's not really a sermon at all. <laughs> yeah, at all, literally, at all. Even his handling of the biblical text isn't helping people, really. Hey, you're driving so-so, because everybody knows this. That's good. Need some work. Hey, you're awful, okay? They get it. And, and if you really want to express what you're feeling, you give it a face. You know what I mean? You're like... It's the disappointed face, the, come on now, get it right, you know, they'll get it. Oh, yeah, what I just did was not good. If you use that, it'll be, trust, you, trust me, it'll save you from being frustrated because you're going to laugh at yourself. Uh, my wife loves it when I do that because she just laughs. She just sits there and goes, I can't believe you just gave him the thumbs down. I was like, hey, I'm just expressing how I, I just wanted to know that what they did is bad. Because <laughs> the middle, I mean, I mean, the middle finger makes me look bad, and I don't want to look bad. And so... An idiot is quick to fly off the handle, but the sword would bite their lips at some cheap jabs. It, it's, it's when your kid reacts, you've got to be quiet. You, 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 you've got to wait. You've got to re- respond. Slow down. Take a breath. You know, man, what they just said hurt. What they just did hurts. But I will not react. The reaction is where you get yourselves in trouble. That's where relationships tank because we choose to react. You know what? You're, you're, you've got to fight yourself all the time. You know, this mouth of ours, it'll make us or break us. It's what will get us in trouble or out of trouble. It's our mouth. James actually talks about it in the Bible. James chapter uh, 3, verse 4 through 6, it says this. Again, notice we're, we're pulling out all of the life tip, application sections, application verses in the Bible. They're, they are there. There are plenty of 
application passages in the Scripture. Um, in the New Testament, very few of them, very few of them at all are divorced in their full context from the gospel itself. We're not hearing the gospel. We're just hearing, well, the application pieces of the Scripture being given to people as if that's the point of the application. Just apply this and everything's going to be okay. You see, in Scripture, when it comes to these application passages, these these verses, the thing that's reinforced and taught at the beginning is the gospel. Because you cannot properly apply God's word with any any true benefit to your life without first being brought to repentance and the forgiveness of your sins. The point of the Bible is not, well, oh, well, you're, you're, you're just not applying the right things to your life to make your life better. So the Bible is a book of self-help tips and applications that if you would just you know apply them to your life, your life would get better. That's not what the Bible teaches. You're, the Bible actually teaches that when you become a Christian, your life actually may get significantly worse, significantly worse to the point where you're persecuted uh, for the name of Christ, where you could be martyred and lose your life for proclaiming Jesus Christ. The problem presented in the Scripture is that all of us by nature who are descended from Adam and Eve are, are born dead in trespasses and sins. We are born in rebellion to God. Okay, the solution to that is not something that we accomplish. It's not just, well, you've been rebelling, just stop rebelling. (laughs) Apply these things and behave and God's going to go, Okay, well, that's that's good. I'm going to let you into heaven. No, because the justice of God has to be addressed. The justice of God demands punishment. God's wrath and justice demands that you pay the, 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 the penalty for your sins is paid for. And so. Christianity is a religion that primarily calls you first and foremost to believe a message. And what you do as a result of believing that message is the fruit of repentance. Okay, big difference. We're called to believe that Jesus Christ suffered the wrath of God and God's justice was placated as a result of what he did on the cross for you. The therefores, the the applications then, all flow from the gospel, the gospel being applied directly to you, the thing that you believe, the the Savior whom you trust, the God who loves you so much that he gave his life for you, and now your life, you've been regenerated, born again, raised from the dead, now your life, you have the power of God to say no to sin and to begin making progress, if you would, in sanctification and holy living, in, in that God the Holy Spirit is going to begin to curb that sin out of your life. It's an imperfect process here on earth, and uh, and ultimately will be perfected when we are raised again from the dead uh, with with new bodies. Okay, but yeah, I digress on the eschatology thing. But the point of the, the point is this: when a seeker-driven pastor over and again, strip mines the Bible for the life application principles to give to people to make their lives better so they can experience life change and life transformation. The reality is is that they're not really delivering what the Bible promises because the Bible doesn't promise you life change and making your life better apart from Christ and him crucified for your sins and you being and you constantly being reminded of what Jesus has done for you. The therefores are always because of what God has done 
first, our response to what God has done for us on the cross is this. You get what I'm saying? So notice, he's just finding all these life principles and tips, but where's Jesus? Where's the cross? Where's the shed blood of Christ? Where's regeneration? Where's repentance? Where's the forgiveness of sins? I'm not hearing any of that. Instead, I'm just hearing, just apply these principles to your life, and it'll fix the problem right up. And the reality is, is no, it won't. That's the equivalent of slapping on a fresh coat of paint onto a sepulcher, a bone box, a you know, a crypt. It still has dead men's bones in it, and applying a new paint job might make it look pretty on the outside, but it doesn't address the dead bones on the inside of it. That's the problem. A small rudder makes a huge shift turn wherever the pilot chooses to go. Even through, the, even, through the, even though the winds are tough and strong. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches. But a teeny spark can set a great forest on fire. And the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire. For it is set on fire by hell itself. James is really telling you it's so little... Compared to the size of your body, it is not... Notice that James says your tongue is set on fire by hell itself. Some should tell you something about uh, man's sinful nature. And what Jesus said, that you are of your father the devil. He was a liar from the beginning. The truth, he cannot abide by the truth because there is no truth in him. You know, things like that. I mean, this this passage addresses, and it rather bluntly the depth of our problem, that by nature, humanity is in league with the devil. Hello? Not very big, yet it can destroy your potential really fast. You say the wrong thing. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Your tongue can destroy your potential. That's not what James's point was. To the wrong person, you're arrested. You, you react instead of respond, and that relationship's ended. It gets you into spots where you're going, how do I get here? And you rewind most of the time. It comes right back to your own mouth. And you've got to be in control of your mouth. You can't just say, oh, man, it slipped. Which reminds me of a story. Everything reminds me of a story. When I was... Oh, no, you're going to regale us with another story. Yeah, again, he's been to the Bill Engvall School of Preaching. Very young, about seventh, seventh grade, I, I had just become a Christ follower. I asked Jesus to be my best friend. It was awesome, but I still struggled with my language. It wasn't very clean. If I, if I, That's because you are a sinner by nature. Hello? Had a bleeping machine. A lot of my things would be bleeped out. You know, it's just that's where I was in seventh grade. And so one afternoon, it was a summer break. My sisters and I are playing kickball in the living room. Sounds like a great thing to do inside, right? Yes. I'd, I'd be honest, it was my idea. And so we're in there, I mean, playing kickball. And one of my sisters threw uh, the ball at me, hit me, and I was like, I'm safe, you're out. We had an argument. Well, then I called her some nice names, okay, where the bleeping machine needed to be brought into the room. Well, my dad was in the other room, and he heard it, and he goes, Scott Stanley, Mendenhall, get in here. And when the, my three names were used, okay, when they were said, it was like you go into a protective mode. I started looking for something to put in my back of my pants because I knew it was going to happen. I'm like, where's the towel, okay? I need something back there. Oh, my goodness. I didn't find anything, you know. And I walk into my, my dad, and, I, and I'm standing looking up at my dad. Uh, and he goes, what would you say? And I was like, nothing. <laughs> Where would you learn those words? School. 
when you're in trouble, you never give out too much detail. It's just one word answers. Nothing. School. I don't know. Because, you know, when you get in trouble and somebody goes, what are you doing? If you tell them what you're doing and that's not what you're in trouble for, you got in trouble now for two things. It's always important to ask the real question. Well, what did you think I was doing? Because that's the real question to hand. Uh, let me ask a better question. Do you think God knew what you were doing and that it mattered to him, your father in heaven? Hello. Uh, and so he goes, where'd you learn those words at school? Dad, it slipped out. I didn't, I didn't mean to say those things, Dad. I, I'm, I'm so sorry. And, and, you know, and, and usually how the punishments went down growing up, mom and dad would say, go give me something to spank you with. And I was a bright kid. You know, I was like, come back with a log. Here you go, Dad. It's a hardwood object. Go to town, you know. Well, at 16, I started realizing, man, if they ask that question today, I'm going to get a piece of paper. Here you go, Dad. Have a ball, baby. You know, but no, I go and find hard objects. Here you go, Dad. This was the hardest thing I could find. Why? I don't understand. I, I, oh, man, just didn't think. And so the conversation wasn't going that way this time. Dad wasn't saying, go get something to spank you with. Dad was going, oh, man, it slipped. You didn't mean to? I understand. You know, I understand sometimes things slip out of our mouth. Yeah, so, okay, I can I, I relate. And I, I'm sitting there going, whoa, this stuff works. But the next time I hit my sister, I'm like, Dad, it slipped. My arm kind of took over and just, I'm so sorry. It'll get me out of trouble. And so I can see and my, my, my defenses are down. I'm just kind of standing there waiting for the lecture to be over, to move on. And out of nowhere, my dad's hand goes, right across my face. My head spins around like five times like, what's that for, Dad? Oh, my gosh, what did you do that for? I didn't see that coming, Dad. And he goes, oh, I'm so sorry. It slipped. Lesson learned, okay? Lesson learned. I was like, yes, duly noted. It's my fault. If it slips out, it's my responsibility. I'm actually in control of my mouth. You are. Yes, now let's talk about, (laughs) you know, the justice of God now for all of our sins that we are responsible for. You notice that, I mean, that, I mean, we're not dealing with the Holy God here. We're apparently just make your life better and God's just going to be happy with uh, the results and the progress of your changed life. Uh, But what about the wrath of God being uh, met here, the justice of God being uh, propitiated? Do you understand what I'm saying? You're in control of your mouth. You've got to choose to respond instead of reacting. I'm trying to drill that into your head because I can promise you this. In the next few hours, you're going to have an opportunity to respond or react. Some of you are going to have to go to the children's ministry or potential church and pick up your kid and you're going to have to decide are you going to respond or react are you going to grab them by the throat and just squeeze a little bit yeah feel that power you know that's reacting okay all parents want to want to do that uh, why are you assuming that when the people go pick up their child that that uh, they are going to have to react in that way what goes on in the child care there at potential church and, and here here's the deal is that we, because we're all not perfect. If we react in the moment, we react and we're like, oh, man, I just messed up. Here, here, here's the coolest bit about the containers we carry with gas and water. These run out. When I put them in my mouth, we start running out and go low. But you carry containers that never run out. You always have a container of water and you always have a container of gasoline. And at every given moment, you can use one or the other. And if you accidentally use the gas, the water still works the same. It will put out the fire. And so if you reacted in some situations and you're going, oh, man, I really messed up. You know what? The godly thing to do, what the Bible says, is to come back, humble yourself, and apologize. I'm so sorry I messed up. Humble yourself and apologize. Can we talk about now about humbling yourself and 
asking God to forgive you of your sins. Can we talk about the? Can we talk about Jesus, please? With my three-year-old, I I I, I got to live this out once. With my three-year-old, he came home with a a toy truck. I was like, "Where'd you get that, Legend?" He's like, "School." I was like, "They're not giving cars away at school, Legend." Who, who gave it to you? He's like, Corey gave it to me. I'm like, Corey who? There's no Corey in your class. He's like, Corey gave it to me. No last name. I was like, I don't, I don't, I'm not believing this, legend. I think you stole this. You stole the, the car. You're a pastor's son. You cannot steal. It looks bad on dad. Uh, and so I was like, we're going back to school tomorrow, and we're going to take the car back in, and you're going to apologize to your teacher for stealing the car, and, and we'll sort it out. So he comes in the next morning to class. He's his head's down holding the car, you know, and he just comes to his teacher and goes, Here, here's your car back. And the teacher goes, I've never seen that car before. And I was like, I asked the question, well, where'd he get it? And she said, oh, Corey was in here yesterday. He just walked by the doorway and gave Legend the car. I was like, oh, oh, yes, right. Legend, can I see you in the hallway? And so I pulled Legend back out and I got down on one knee. I was like, Legend, I am, I am so sorry. I didn't know that you were telling the truth. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, I, I just thought that, you know, I apologize. I didn't really know what to say. He just kept saying sorry. He gives me a big hug and says, Daddy, it's okay. One day you'll learn. I was like, <laughs> three years old. My kid, man, three years old. I am in big trouble. I am in big trouble. And I was just, he walked away. I'm just laughing. I'm going, yes, I will. Uh, and, and he goes back in, and it was just me humbling myself. You know, I didn't have to because he's three years old. I doubt that when he was 30, he'd look back and go, Dad, remember that one time at three years old, you accused me of stealing a car, and I didn't? I'm really still mad at you about that. But because I want to develop the godly principles in my life as a dad, I got down on one knee, and I said, Legend, I'm so sorry. I was like, I'll buy you another car when we pick you up from school. <laughs> Uh, whatever you want. Uh, I just apologize to him because that's when you react. You still have the water. You can come back and clean up the mess. And some of you guys got to go back and clean up some messes with your kids. And maybe with your parents, you got to go back and clean up some messes because some some reaction happened. And- can, can we talk about the mess that Jesus cleaned up? And gas was dumped on it, and your relationship is in, in trouble. And so, I, I, I mean, I want you to wrestle with that and, and that you go back and fix those. One last story out of First Samuel chapter 18. Uh, I want to talk about King David in a situation that we can all relate to, but I'll give you some background to the story here. King David uh, had just killed the Philistine, Goliath, the giant. Uh, King Saul came along and said, man, you are the man. Why don't you move into the, to the, my palace and work for me? David did. He played the harp every day for the king. And then the king kind of made him the general, not kind of, but made him the general over the Israelite army. And that's where we pick up in the story at verse 6 of chapter 18 of 1 Samuel. When the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistines, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. And this was their song. Saul had killed his thousands And David is ten thousands. This made Saul very angry. What's this? He said. They credit David with ten thousands and me with only a thousand. Next, they'll be making him their king. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The very next day, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul, and he began to rave in his house like a madman. David was playing the harp as he did each day. But Saul had a spear in his hand, and he suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall. But David escaped him twice. So Saul gets irritated with David, 
as a mad king, and he picks up a spear that he had in his hand, and he began to throw it at, at David. Now, this, the, the spears that he's probably thrown are much larger than this. This is made for, by some local Indians here in South Florida. But he throws it at him, intending to pin him up against the wall. And, and, and here's the deal. We have spears thrown us all day long. You got people at work telling you you don't drive the right car, that you don't live in the right house, that you're not cool, you're, you're, you don't look the right part, you don't wear the right clothes, you're not a very good parent, you got kids telling you that you're not a very good mom or dad, that you don't love them, and those are all spears being thrown at you. And they Cue sappy music. They hurt, and they don't feel very good when someone throws a spear at you because you're really offended. And most people ask, well, what do you do when someone throws a spear? Well, I, I want to read a chapter out of the book that I've been reading with some of our lion chasers, which is some of... Uh, lion chasers. Obviously, they're reading Batterson's book on chasing lions on snowy days and stuff like that. The students in the student ministry here were reading A Tale of Three Kings. It's a great book, really small. It covers the life of three kings, King Saul, King David, and King Absalom, and brings truths out of them. I want to read out of chapter 6 out of the book. Uh, I want to read... Right after that moment, spears thrown at David and what he does. David had a question. What do you do when someone throws a spear at you? Doesn't it seem odd to you that David didn't know the answer to his question? After all, everyone else in the world knows what to do when a spear is thrown at you. Why? You pick up the spear and throw it right back. If we were to ask people in the world that do not have a godly background, and you ask them, what do you do when someone hurts you? They're going to say, hurt them right back. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If you don't stand up for yourself, no one will. If you get wronged, wrong them right back. That's what the world tells us to do when we're hurt. When somebody reacts to us, react right back. Zing them, hurt them. When someone throws a spear at you, David, just pull it out of the wall and throw it back. Everyone else does. You can be sure of that. Even if you ask yourself, yourself will lie to yourself and say, that's what you should do, throw the spear back. Because our skin... It's selfish, and our skin thinks it's got to stand up for itself and react instead of responding. And in performing the small feat of returning the throne spear, you will prove many things. You're courageous. You stand for the right. You bully standing. Okay, I'm going to pause here. Uh, could a Mormon listen to this sermon and say, ah, it's a pretty good sermon? How about a Jew? I think even an atheist could probably sit through this one. Um, yeah, where's the offense of the cross? I mean, here you're talking about relationships gone bad. I mean, this would be a perfect segue to talk about what Jesus has done. Are we going to get there, please? Against the wrong. You are tough and can't be pushed around. You will not stand for injustice or unfair treatment. You are the defender of faith, keeper of the flame, detector of all heresy. You will not be wronged. All of these things... All of these attributes then combine to prove that you are also a candidate for kingship. Yes, perhaps you are the Lord's anointed after the order of King Saul. There are also a possibility that some 20 years after your coronation or your kingship, you will be the most incredibly skilled spear thrower in all the realm. And also by then, quite mad. Remember what I read in, in, in the scriptures there? What, what did the scriptures refer to as Saul, the spear thrower? They refer to him as the madman. He'd gone crazy. 
Crazy people throw spears. The mad people throw. Talk about how come he was crazy. Talk about the uh, spirit that the Lord sent to basically punish him for his rebellion against God. Throw the spears. David, the Bible talks about David in Acts chapter 13, verse 22. Uh, a guy that did not throw the spears, that just moved out of the way, that became really good at dodging spears. It says, I, God, found David, a son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, to do everything I want him to do. That's what God says of men and women that do not return spears thrown at them. No, God doesn't say that to anybody who doesn't trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. You cannot, on your own merit, on your own righteousness, expect God to say anything kind in regard to you. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So unless you have faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, God is not going to look down from heaven at you and go, oh, what a great person. So it doesn't matter how many spears you don't throw back at people when they're thrown at you. That is not what makes you righteous in the eyes of God. What makes you righteous before God and justified is the shed blood of Christ that propitiates the wrath of God, whose blood atones for your sin, and whose perfect righteousness is given to you by faith so that you have the righteousness of Christ. We continue. It's funny, Hollywood has become great at, at saying the real heroes these days are the villains. When you watch superhero movies, you find yourself rooting for the villain more than you do the hero. And the world would say the, 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 the villain is the hero when, when they stand up for themselves. They stand up for injustice. They, they, they puff themselves up. That's the real hero. I'm here today to say that's not a, what the Bible says a hero is. A hero is somebody that can take the shot, take the spear thrown at them, and not return it. That's a real hero. Somebody that doesn't get hurt, or somebody that gets hurt and doesn't hurt somebody else. That's the real hero. Why don't we talk about the one who was pierced for our transgressions? Who, when he was on trial, did not even lift a voice, his voice to defend himself but suffered the greatest injustice of all for our sins. And I'm asking you today as parents, be the hero. Don't return the spear when your kids throw the spear at you. Learn how to dodge. Even when it hurts, respond and don't react. The skin says to react. The skin wants these things. Who doesn't want these things said about them? Who doesn't want you know somebody to say, man, you stand for what's right. You boldly stand against the, the, the wrong, you're, you're tough, you can't be pushed around. Those are all great qualities that people want said about them. But that's the mad people, that's the crazy people. you got to fight the skin every day to respond instead of to react. you got to say to yourself, this is a moment to put gasoline or water on it, and I've got to make that choice. It is up to you. It doesn't matter what somebody does to you. Don't ever say, well, they reacted, so I'm going to react. No, it doesn't make it right. You can't justify your way out of what you just did. If they react to you and put gasoline on you, you are still responsible for you no matter what wrong has been done to you. And that's tough for people to hear. It's up to you on how you're going to react or respond. And my prayer really is that we just learn how to respond instead of reacting. That's going to help uncomplicate our relationship with our kids and uncomplicate relationships with our employers and employees. And the list goes on 
on who that helps uncomplicate. We've got to learn how to control this and know how to respond instead of reacting and, and to not return spears. It's hurting people. Hurt people. <clears throat> let me pray for you guys. Okay, no, I, I'm not going to let you pray. I'm not even sure which God you believe in. Um, I, I learned nothing about your God. I mean, yeah, you, you, you quoted the Bible, but um, I mean, you showed that you don't really understand the biblical gospel. You don't even understand basic New Testament doctrine, basic New Testament theology. And uh, just a reminder, Scott Mendenhall is, um, well, he's an up-and-coming uh, young pup in the uh, seeker-driven, purpose-driven church uh, feeder system. You know, that would be, you start off uh, you know, in youth ministry, and, and then eventually you make your way to the big stage. Well, this was his first, not, I don't know if it's first, but... Uh, during the summertime, when the, the head pastor's away, uh, sometimes they'll have uh, the youth minister deliver the sermon. And, uh, well, now we can know what to expect at Potential Church. And this gives you an idea of the up-and-coming leadership in the seeker-driven movement. Um, it doesn't bode well. This is not uh, this is not an improvement. This is a an abject, f- you know, fail, if, you know, in on, on so many fronts. I mean, this is something that this the sermon had nothing to do with Christ and Him crucified. Had nothing to do with sound biblical doctrine, and as a result of it, uh, the advice that he gave was shallow, at best. And doesn't really solve the problem that we all have. The problem that we all have is that he, we're all dead in trespasses and sins, and we need a savior. What he what he preached there doesn't have the power to change lives because the law only condemns; it doesn't give you the power to obey. Yeah, you can't even make any progress in sanctification without Christ and Him crucified. That's just flat out what the Bible teaches. So what did you think? You, uh, you, do you have hope now for the future of the seeker-driven megachurch movement? <laughs> I think you should consider this to be a wake-up call. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you and to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute six ninety five every month. Go and support us. Till next, uh, well, actually, till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.